listeners near and far, we have a little announcement for you today before we play you our next episode. Some of you may have noticed that our name has slightly changed to Cetrus Never Paribus. Do not fear, we're still the same group of nerds, I mean historians of economic thought, hoping to share interesting research and conversations with you. We hope that you will remain loyal to our little corner of the podcast world. Happy listening. Welcome to a new episode of Satirus Never Paribus, the history of economic thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher and my guest is Irvin Decker. Irvin is an assistant professor of cultural economics and a postdoctoral researcher on Jan Tinbergen at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. His interests beside the history of economic thought are cultural economics and economic methodology. Irvin is not really a guest because he is a co-host on this podcast as well. The topic of our talk today will be Irvin's book, The Viennese Students of Civilization, The Meaning and Context of Austrian Economics Reconsidered. It has been published by Cambridge University Press in 2016 and is based on Irvin's PhD research. So welcome, Irvin. Thank you, Reinhard. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start, as you do in the introduction of your book, you begin by pointing out that early Austrian economics has been misconceived or is misconceived nowadays. So how is early Austrian economics misunderstood nowadays? Well, the project really started from a, a, a fairly general question, which is a question about how ideas migrate. And uh, as you well know, the Austrian school at the moment is uh, biggest in the United States rather than in Austria. In fact, in Austria, it's a little more than a historical curiosity, which um, still has some people studying it, but it's not really a live research program. And this is very different in the United States, uh, where it's still a very much a live research program. So in part, the question um, was sparked by this idea of uh, migration of ideas. And that also poses the question, to what extent our reading of early Austrianism has been tainted or transformed through the lens of modern American Austrianism? And so I think that a lot of the uh, misconceptions and especially the emphasis we place on certain people and certain themes and certain political positions has been seriously influenced by that American uh, reception of the Austrian school. Mm -hmm. So that's one hand. And the other thing I think that has happened and that I try to correct in the book is that it has become an, a school of economics. Now, I'm not here to deny that the Austrian School of Economics was a school of economics, but my book does try to argue very seriously that they were not only that, that they were also a more generally a school of social thought and uh, that they studied civilization much more broadly than just uh, market phenomena or capital theory or uh, whatever major theme that they're usually associated with in economics. So this brings us to the brief discussion on your broader approach. As you already alluded to, it's not a narrow book on the history of economic thought, but it's rather history of the institutions and the cultural context. And somewhere you write that the literature, art and cultural atmosphere are all essential ingredients of Austrian economics, at least during the early part. So what is the advantage of this broader approach to the history of economic thought, not just concentrating on the economic part, but rather on the institutional and the cultural context 
because this is something that is rarely done, I suppose, in the history of economics. So I, I think uh, the answer to that is is fairly simple. It's uh, I've I've asked myself, uh, seriously inspired by my supervisor's uh, work on conversations and their importance. I've asked myself what conversations were the Austrian economists and Austrian social thinkers more generally at the time engaged in. So what type of conversations were they having? What themes were being discussed there? What kind of problems did they face? And to me, it's fairly obvious that certainly they were engaged in discussions with economists from the Lausanne School, from the English uh, marginalist tradition. So they were certainly in context with them, right? And, and we know about this and we know about the connections to Robbins at the London School of Economics. We know about influences that uh, Valra and Pareto had on their thought. But that's certainly only about half of uh, the conversation that they were having. And I tried to bring back the other half of the conversation, which was a conversation about the future of liberalism in Vienna. And it was a conversation about instincts. It was a conversation about how tradition and rationality relate to one another. It was a conversation about uh, philosophy and methodology. As we know, the most famous uh, circle that we know from Vienna is the Wiener Kreis or the Vienna Circle, which is a group of philosophers of science. So I try to bring back those other conversations and put them next to the economic conversation and see how the meaning of their work thereby changed. We will hopefully get into that a bit. So let's start with the title of your book, which is The Viennese Students of Civilization. What is a student of civilization? Why didn't you, for example, use the word scholar or economist? I think that the best way to, to explain the student bit of that title is to think about two other disciplines. Um, the first discipline, which I discuss in some detail in my book, is that of medicine. And there, um, if we look to the Viennese medical school, we find that rather than relying on a sort of knowledge of uh, solutions and of medicine, they start to study the human body and how it functions. And so rather than having a method of healing so much, they try to see how the body heals itself. This at the time is also called Naturheilkunde, so how nature heals itself. And so rather than feeling that they are somehow the master of their subject, they uh, make themselves somewhat small and they see that the body already heals itself. So perhaps we merely have to promote those natural processes of healing. Now, you can also think of this in, in biology, where a lot of biologists study animal behavior to learn about the solutions that evolution or evolutionary processes have come up with in relation to, of course, different uh, biological environments. Right? And uh, my argument is that um, what is distinct about the student approach in Vienna is that these economists do the same thing. So rather than trying to come up with a grand theoretical scheme of how the economy works, the true student attitude, which certainly is never perfect in any of the Austrian economists, but it does make them very distinct, is that they study how social and cultural processes, processes already work and work to solve a whole host of social and economic problems. And they say, well, perhaps we merely have to promote 
or let these natural processes sort of do what they do naturally and perhaps that's all we have to do and so it's yeah there's a famous essay in which hayek argues that we should awe and marvel at the price system but so this is a system that he says has has come about more or less naturally although i also argue that it's come about culturally and he says we merely have we we study it and we are in awe and we marvel at its wonders which you could almost argue is pretty close to what we now call a scientific attitude um, right it reminds one a bit of the early enlightenment thinkers who merely tried to read the book of nature rather than try to master nature they try to learn about the wonders of nature and consequently of god and i i argued that that same element is there in viennese thought so what's the civilization referring to in this context so the civilization is a word that i ultimately have taken from the primary texts so i've i've struggled quite a bit with so how do you say this right the one alternative would certainly be political economy rather than just the economy mm-hmm. um but i the downside that had for me was that political economy tends to oppose the market and the state and if it doesn't tend to oppose it it at least try, uh, um very much thinks in in terms of that sort of dichotomy between the market does it or the state does it mm-hmm. um and so i it gave me trouble to to think well political economy is the right term and so i started looking for other words that they used and they used the word civilization which has the downside perhaps of sounding somewhat conservative um there are certainly some conservative austrian economists but they're not all conservative and they come out of a somewhat progressive liberal tradition in vienna um but it does have the advantage of making the ideas of what makes societies function and what makes human beings cooperate in the broader sense of that term um it takes all of that into account so hayek frequently has a sort of tripartite phenomenon that he calls law language and money and then law and language and money all facilitate human interaction and ultimately human cooperation and so these three things are one way of thinking about what civilization could entail so it's um the collection of sets of technologies if you like or cultural artifacts that help human beings live together the civilization is not necessarily coming naturally to humans is it no It's no so so this is this is i i think one of the one of the big arguments in the book is that i try to locate this civilization between rationalism so the uh, reliance on the human mind to come up with solutions um rationalist solutions and the instinctual or natural side of the issue and they see in vienna both camps being represented so the instincts and a reliance on simple human nature or human nature as it really is um they find at in in the work of some romantics um one could think of the work um of otmar spann but they particularly are critical of the work of sigmund freud and especially its effects that it has which is sort of trying to throw off the yoke of civilization and free the instincts 
and let human beings connect with their true nature again. And then on the other hand, they see highly rationalist solutions coming about. So um, grand social schemes that work very well on paper, that are logically consistent, but that have little touch with reality and have failed to learn from that reality. And there in between, they try to place that notion of civilization, which are historically grown in, it's, it's a set of historically grown institutions, which frequently, and this is, this is an important argument in virtually all of the Viennese thinkers, which suppress some of our natural instincts. So human co cooperation is not merely natural, it's also a suppression of more dominating or subversive instincts. And it's through that process that they, um, that they see civilization working and they see it function, but it's a difficult middle ground to hold. Uh, and that's specifically the story about the interwar period, but we perhaps we'll talk about that more later on. Um, just to, to make sure when you talk about the rational position that was mainly, or not mainly, but also representatives of socialism, of planned socialism, like uh, Neurath, for example, that is what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, they, they do equate uh, rationalism with socialism to a certain extent. But yeah, important in this regard is Hayek's book on the counter-revolution in science, in which he certainly tries to trace the rationalist attitude back to the French Revolution. Uh, also, some non-socialist thinkers, socialist thinkers do, do um, play a, a prominent role in it. But um, I discuss Karl Popper. And he also sees the highly rationalist mode of thinking in historical school thinkers, especially Hegel. He singles out as finding a sort of grand scheme of history, as figuring out the grand scheme of history and the true spirit of history. And they say all of those things are far beyond human comprehension, if they even can be understood at all. Um, so they're kind of uh, rationalist hubris on the side of these uh, historical thinkers. So, and in order to bring about civilization and also the freedom that civilization makes possible, both those natural inclinations and also or instincts and also the rationalism has to be restrained. You make a lot of point that on the restraining part that that's important for the early Austrians. Yeah. So, um, but how is the, what is the relationship between civilization and freedom then? Because this was what they were ultimately looking for, like a free society or freedom, liberalism. Yeah. So what is the connection between civilization and freedom? Well, it's not an easy one. It's even a, a somewhat paradoxical one, one could say, because unlike, um, say, the liberalism of John Stuart Mill, it's not simply the absence of constraints. So it's not a kind of, yeah, what I think you now also see in modern libertarian views that any anything that does away with interferences and constraints should uh, would enhance freedom. That's not at all their view. In the book, I, I quote the anthropologist Bronislav Malinowski to illustrate this. Right? He argues man is not born free. So this is very clearly against Rousseau. He's born to a new freedom, which he can only achieve by taking up the chains of tradition and using them for paradoxically, these very chains are the instruments of freedom. Now, Malinowski already acknowledges here that this is a paradoxical argument because it says you first become somewhat unfree and that 
ultimately will make you uh, freer. And for that, you have to understand that they think of culture as something that enable ultimately enables human action. Now, I think this is fairly easy to see with language, right? If we have to communicate you and I without a shared language, we will have a hard time communicating and our communication will be far more uh, limited, less rich. Mm -hmm. um, now, it also imposes some constraints. Uh, certainly, you will have to learn language first. I will have to learn the same language. We have to agree on what language that is. Um, sometimes you could even say that a shared language is to a certain extent imposed. And for markets, you might even say this is harder to see, right? So why is it that by taking up, say, a job or submitting myself to the forces of competition, how does that ultimately make me more free? And that is one of the questions I take up. And I don't think they fully resolve it, but they do say that markets are incredible tools of ultimately human co cooperation that allow humans to specialize in what they're good at. Uh, it allows people the freedom to choose between a far wider variety of career paths and consumption patterns that they would than they would otherwise have. But to be absolutely clear about it, this is only because they have accepted certain constraints and certain modes of conduct and follow certain rules that, as Hayek keeps on emphasizing, they might not fully understand and they might want to revolt again, but it's precisely through the acceptance of these cultural institutions that they become more free. And there's not a clear causality in there, it's rather a feedback process. You constrain yourself, then you bring about civilization and markets, they themselves have restraining effects on, on people. Like civilization, once it is established, the thought is that this has restraining effects on its members, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's right. And it, it's not easy because, uh, I mean, the, the, the fair question that we should be asking is uh, how do we distinguish between the things that are truly constraints and the things that ultimately foster uh, human cooperation and interaction, right? And that's not an easy uh, thing. Just, I mean, to go back to the example of language, Think of the very strict grammar rules. Are they really necessary to foster human cooperation or can we loosen them a little bit? Right? And, and here it's important, uh, and I do so in the book to a certain extent, to also read alongside their work, the work of Norbert Elias, who has written about the civilizing process. And one of the paradoxes that came about after he had completed the book, right? bourgeois culture started breaking down a little bit. Uh, many cultures became more informal, Rather than formal, it seemed that a lot of the shared norms were breaking down to a certain extent, but it also seemed that human interaction still worked fairly well. So one of the major questions in post-Norbert Elias scholarship is, is this sort of more informal culture still a more civilized culture or is it not? And uh, does it refute this idea of uh, the civilizing process or not? To come back to a bit of economics, um, yeah. or the Austrian economics side, Nowadays, it is normally portrayed as being based on what is called methodological individualism. And you make the point that this is not really true for the early Austrians. Well, I would, I would go further, right? I would argue that it's not really true for, for, for Hayek either. Um, so it extends at least all the way to him. And it's because of this curious interaction that they see. So they, it's important for them to say that 
human beings act, and that should be the starting point of our analysis, but they do so in a highly textured environment, um, right? In an environment in which they draw upon all sorts of shared bits of civilization, shared norms, shared institutions, and those institutions to a large extent shape uh, their behavior. Now, I'm perfectly fine with calling this methodological individualism. I'm not particularly tied to any type of label, but it is very important to see that the that they kind of toggle between individualism and holism all the time. They they toggle between the individual and the structure in which he operates. So it's not a simple individual who gets to choose whatever he wants. Uh, far from it. It's an individual that's uh, embedded in culture as some of the uh, economic sociologists have it. You start, um, or you, you refer to, to Karl Menger also, who is the founder nowadays, seen as the founder of Austrian economics, and you argue that this relationship between civilization and economic development is already in his theory. How is that, or in which way? Yeah, so there, um, I think to, to understand that point fully, you need two important pieces of evidence. One is, uh, as many people have pointed out, and this by not at all a new point, he's, he's deeply influenced by certain strands in the historical school. And... The other piece of evidence I think that I bring, which is perhaps somewhat more novel, although not wholly novel, is to read the other parts of the book and focus less on the theory purely of the good and the definition of the good and the theory of value and focus a little bit more on uh, higher order goods, as he calls them, and also on his theory of economic development that you find in the book, which certainly isn't the main theme of the book, but uh, it's definitely there and the higher order goods play an important role in that story. So, so to take the, the two points each, first the historical school. Now the historical school is more of a, a holistic tradition. Uh, it argues that the institutions of the time and place to a large extent de determine the type of economic activity and also the, the type of economic behavior that we see. It also has at the time somewhat nationalist thoughts in it. So the individual mainly contributes to this thing that is bigger than him. And this never quite goes away in the Austrian school. So there are still passages in Hayek in which he argues that we contribute to something that's bigger than us. But you very clearly still see it in Menger. But what Menger does do is he, he also says that ultimately we should evaluate how well an economic system functions by how well it is able to satisfy individual wants and needs. And I argue that this is uh, the primary break that he makes with the historical school, which is far less concerned with the, the needs and wants of any particular individual. Now, to take on the second point, I think there's a theory of economic development uh, and of stages in development in Menger that is somewhat reminiscent of Adam Smith. I, st I still think it's a puzzle of historical scholarship why he goes after Adam Smith so badly at the start of the book in which he, he makes an argument against the division of labor and in favor of, of knowledge as the driver of economic development. But leaving that aside, it's the theory of economic development that is about stages of economic development. I think of his theory of the emergence of money, which clearly goes to uh, different stages of, of money before we reach to uh, what it currently, uh, before we reach the states that we are currently at or we're perhaps moving into a new stage. And this theory of economic development draws on the idea that 
we're not merely satisfying the wants and needs of the now, but as civilization progresses, we're more and more developing a longer time horizon. And this longer time horizon allows us or makes us invest in what he calls higher order goods. Now, these higher order goods cannot be directly consumed, but they can be used in the future to satisfy our needs. And he says, as civilization progresses, they produce ev ever more higher order of goods. Now, people have tried to trace whether you can fully uh, base a mathematical theory on this, but I think that's not the most important bit of it. The most important bit is that he talks about extending our time horizon into the future. And then implicitly, at least already, also the idea of planning comes up, not so much as in conscious planning for the long-term future, but every individual extends his time horizon and starts thinking not merely about his own needs, but about his own uh, needs, perhaps for old age or his own needs uh, for, for the children that he will someday have. And so this extending of the time horizon is very much part of a civilizational development that Menger very much favors and that he sees as uh, perhaps even the essence of economic development. Um, so let's move on to the representative of the second generation then, which is um, Eugen Böhm-Bawerk. And you bring this uh, example of his capture theory that what we discussed about civilization and the restraints, that this is also seen in his capture theory. So how is that? Um, yeah, this is a, this is a small point, uh, but it it very much built on what I was just saying about uh, time horizons and time horizons being longer. Now, one consequence of that is that human beings become better at abstinence. So, abstinence of consumption becomes better. That is somewhat different. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting to contrast with Marxist theory of of accumulation, right? Because Marxist theory of accumulation argues that accumulation Capital accumulation mainly occurs through a process of exploitation. And Ben Bavek, if you believe my reading, argues that we come better at abstaining for our current wants, develop a longer time horizon, and that makes us invest in capital goods, right? So it's much more closer to the Weber theory of the rise of capitalism, in which ideas are very important and in which a particular ethic that is directed toward the long future is important in getting capitalism off the ground. And so in particular, I argue about Ben Bavak's capital theory is that he sees the slow but steady decline of interest rates as a sign that society as a whole is developing a longer time horizon and is hence, yeah, getting to a higher stage of civilization. Now, granted, that is a very moral and cultural reading based much more on the sources around him than on the actual work of Ben Bavek. I think Ben Bavek features so little in my book because of all the Austrian thinkers that I discuss, I think he's the most narrowly economic of the bunch. So let's move on in time. Then we have the First World War. How did that, I mean, this was a breakdown of civilization. How did that affect the thinking of the early Austrian economists or students of civilization. If I stick fully to the argument in my book, which I guess as the author I should, is that it confuses them. It throws them into a weird state of confusion. They don't really know what, where this outbreak of violence comes from. They have spotted that liberalism, that the progress of liberalism or liberty more generally has halted in the Habsburg Empire 
certainly in even in the decades leading up to it uh, in Vienna the rise of the anti-semitic uh, mayor Karl Luger is very important um, but there there are other very obvious signs that liberalism might not be the future but still this first world war presents them with a puzzle because um, despite their criticisms of hyper rationalism they do think that slowly but steady the world is becoming somewhat more rational that we're getting better at mastering our instincts right this is also the story about civilization and then all of a sudden it seems that our most basest instincts are back on the scene in this uh, horrible experience of the first world war now in the book i discuss two particular responses uh, to this one is by by mises and and the other one by by schumpeter and mises although confused ultimately argues that these instincts will always be part of us and that we have no chance but to find ways to suppress and channel them into other directions schumpeter on the other hand takes the more rationalist or optimistic stance that these are atavistic sentiments so sentiments that have that are historical leftovers that have no longer real utility or function in society so they're aristocratic old sentiments about honor and defending one's honor and slowly but surely they will move away so we will overcome no 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 not overcome but they they will simply fade um so it's a much more yeah you could say his, historicist explanation of these sentiments in mises you find the opposite but i think all in all they both struggle to really make sense of what happens there and they struggle to find a response they see that it hits at the heart of their uh, theory of of what human beings are and human beings can become in the future um, but they don't have a definite answer to it yes and then comes the interwar period probably the most important period for your book yeah we just had an interview on polani about this so then came the socialist calculation debate in which they were prominent how did they um try to make sense of it after the first world world war and defend their arguments against this rationalism and their theory of civilization in this debate so i think there's one very important thing to observe especially given uh, that you bring up polanyi and that is that no matter what you think of the first world war right and and the extent to which they can or cannot make sense of it it's a war of nations and that is not true for the interwar crisis the interwar crisis is a crisis in society it's a crisis of mass movements of of populist sentiments certainly of political leaders but it's not a, a state of war between states it's a, it's a, almost a state of war between different groups in society right the americans have a wonderful way of describing the entire period from 1914 to 1945 as the european civil war um but what go goes on in uh, important parts of europe does have signs of being a civil war constantly different groups are uh, so at odds with one another that violence always seems to be an option that's on the table uh, of course the the fascists will later even rally groups in society to form sort of street gangs uh, to terrorize other people but also just from the ground up we see a number of socialist revolutions taking place an important one in bavaria 
not too far uh, far away from Austria, uh, in which Otto Neurath is involved. So, so I think that's the first important difference to to observe. And then intellectually, I think the following important thing is happening. Socialism becomes a far more serious political force. It starts to control the city in Vienna, but there it also starts to develop a theory of political transformation. So it starts to say, this is the socialist program forward. So socialism no longer is a theory of revolution, right? It's no longer merely the Russian, but there's also an Austrian component to it now, which is a theory of how you can slowly transform a state um, from a capitalist society, a capitalist society into a socialist one. And now the Austrians start to see a clearer enemy. They, they, they understand this is where we can fight them very clearly because we can prove that this uh, socialist way of running a more or less capitalist society, right? Because don't forget in the Austro-Marxist tradition, it's not like the old capitalist institutions will all be gone. The firms will mostly still be there. They will be governed somewhat differently, but they will rely on the same technologies and, and the same production methods uh, and what, whatever have you. And so they just start to develop a critique of that, which is uh, famously done by Mises, who starts, according to some, a socialist calculation debate. You could also argue that it's been lingering for a much longer time, dating all the way back to Wieser. But it certainly comes to the fore uh, around that period. And it is also a moment, yeah, I, I've come to realize more, perhaps even more than I emphasize in the book, a unique period because almost on purely rationalist grounds, we are debating the merits of capitalism and socialism. And so on both sides, uh, perhaps more than I emphasize in the book, there's a belief that this debate can somehow be settled by rationalist and scientific arguments. So that is the 1920s. I don't know, I kind of lost track of precisely what the, what the original question was, but. No, it's fine. Um, in the early 1920s, there was a big crisis in Austrian, in Austria, of course, with the hyperinflation yeah. and all that. But it settled and Red Vienna at the time, the socialists were ruling, there was a lot of social policies, yeah. social housing, etc. And by the mid-20s, the economy yeah. recovered, kind of. Did the early Austrians ever reconcile with the fact that even though there was all those social policies in Red Vienna, the economy was just doing fine? It, it didn't seem to affect the economy too much as they had feared. Did they ever think about that? Hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't remember them particularly uh, reflecting on... On this, they 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 certainly might have their uh, numerous collections now of, of interwar writings that uh, touch on this specifically. But perhaps to continue a little bit, um, what changed between the 1920s and the 1930s is that in the 1920s there's still, and this this relates directly to to the question you now pose. There's still a hope that we can ultimately settle this with rational arguments and. During the 1930s, the prospects become more and more bleak. And rather than thinking that rationalist argument has much to do here, there is slowly starting a growing realization, certainly in the liberal camp that I have studied, that now is the time for a new political program, a new ideology, a new way of 
finding a new way of emphasizing the importance of liberal uh, liberty and individual autonomy. And they slowly but surely start to be engaged more and more in that project rather than in arguing over the particular reforms as they might have in the 1920s. Right In the 1920s, there's also big debates uh, clearly about how to deal with monetary matters in which Mises is still very involved. But it's also in 1929 that he starts writing, why is there so much psychological resistance to the marginal theory? And now, I don't think that that's in, particularly, in particular a very good question or even a very sensible one to ask. But it is important to realize that at that moment, he starts to change from offering sort of reform alternatives to trying to understand why they are hated so much, um, why they can't get their ideas accepted. And that fundamentally changes their attitude in the 1930s and then specifically in the 1940s. Maybe let's stay a bit in the interwar period. As you argue, these yeah. Viennese students of civilization or those thinkers, they were not really... Um, at university, so they were not institutionalized. Yeah. They had other jobs or got a living somehow else, and they met outside the academic world. So maybe you want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. so that's, that's how the book starts off, right? Because the book wants to make this argument about conversations and demonstrate what conversations they were engaged in. And to understand conversations in Vienna, you have to understand the circles. Um, so I think Edward Timms has done the most laborious uh, version of the circles in which he has drawn, I think, over a hundred of them for the interwar period. Now, that's perhaps somewhat exaggerated. And of course, there's the time issue. How long do all of these stick together? How stable are they? But it's perhaps that's, that's not the important point about them. The, the important point about them is that there are lots of small groups of intellectuals coming together around shared teams or shared political convictions or shared religious convictions or uh, shared reform movements. And like I said, it really becomes a, an almost societal movement. Now, of course, many of these people still come from the well-off circles and sometimes they even consciously keep out uh, less well-off well people. But it's the dynamic between these circles that really tells the story about Viennese intellectual life. And the one important consequence it has and why I can keep saying civilization, civilization, rather than economy, economy, or market, market, is that many of these circle, circles are not primarily interested in economy, economy, or market, market. They're interested in much broader themes. They're interested in the future of Austria. They're interested in the future of Europe. They're interested in political themes, but also art is important. Um, right. Let's not forget uh, the fact that uh, Austria and Vienna in particular are flourishing, have a flourishing art tradition around this period, a flourishing musical tradition, a flourishing the theatrical tradition, a literary tradition. So all of these things come together in these circles and that makes the conversations especially broad, wide ranging and comprehensive, far more comprehensive than if they had been in universities practicing particular professional disciplines. And of course, several people were uh, members of several circles. Yeah. But uh, also the um, the circles were kind of exclusive clubs. Like you had to be invited to most of them. And they had their own 
kind of traditions. So it was not an, uh, you could just go and join one of the circles. It was rather elitist, wasn't it? Or exclusive? They, 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 were, certain, they were certainly exclusive. If you were really smart, you could get around some of these rules as these things always go, right? But they were certainly exclusive and they formed strong identities, right? In the book, I make something of the songs that they were singing as sort of identity building processes. And, uh, the members of the Mises Christ all remembered these songs about 50 years after. So they must have been sung quite often. But I, in the book, I also hint at the fact that this might be a kind of institutional angst, right? The, they don't have the standard professional legitimacy. They're not professor of this or chair of that field, right? Often these are individuals from well-to-do family, but but no purely uh, scientific or professional standing. So they have to somehow otherwise build authority. And that authority can come from association with one of the important intellectual figures or from association with one of the important intellectual circles in Vienna. What were the um, important circles for the Austrian economists? So I already mentioned the Mises Christ just now, which was a circle around uh, Ludwig von Mises. And most of the Viennese economists or people interested in economics visited it, but it was certainly not confined to purely economists. Uh, then Hayek and Alfred Schutz, am I saying that correctly? Yes. No, 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 more Fritz Machloop and Hayek set up a circle, and Herbert Fürth uh, was important in setting that up, the, the Geisteskreis, which was a more wide-ranging circle of scholars, um, but important for the liberals uh, in Vienna. There was an Austro-Marxist circle, although that perhaps uh, had more institutional founding than being merely a circle, because, of course, the Austro-Marxist party was also ruling Vienna at the time, so it had more access and institutional standing independent of it. Uh, especially in the 1920s, there's an important circle called the Spannkreis, in which the charismatic uh, Otmar Spann taught his students and fellow thinkers along romanticist lines, Important is, is the Wiener Kreis of philosophers, also because Karl Menger, whom you've studied quite a bit, the son of the, 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 the founder of the Austrian school, was active. And he, he then overlapped with, uh, with the Mises Kreis and, and to a certain extent. And then there was a mathematical colloquium. It's something that I hardly say anything about, but which uh, Robert Leonard has written an amazing book on Vienna and the mathematical colloquium, because it's also the birthplace of mathematical economics. So there, Karl Menger and other, Oskar Morgenstern and other mathematical economists meet with very, very serious mathematicians, and they um, they start a real resurgence uh, or rebirth of mathematical economics. And um, we mentioned it, there was an institutional decline of Austrian economics at the time at the University of Vienna, They never dominated it, but they were prominently represented with Böhm-Bawerk and Visa. Do you know why did they become excluded from the university? Well, I, I would not say they never dominated it. I, I think especially the period between 1900 and, nine, and the start of the First World War, you could fairly uh, easily say that the Austrian school dominated the University of, of Vienna in terms of uh, um, what type of scholars it brought up. 
Schulak and Unterkoffler also have a wonderful book detailing the many students that come out of that, uh, many of them forgotten. But in the 1920s, it is indeed somewhat more problematic. The, the successor of Wieser, Hans Meyer, never quite becomes the scholar and certainly not the central intellectual figure that he um, perhaps had to be. Josef Schumpeter leaves the city, never is, is much there. He, he, comes, he comes to visit, but some people said that he perhaps should have gotten a professorship. Mises, for a variety of reasons that I think the historical details still hasn't, uh, or the historical studies still haven't fully sorted out, but never obtains a full professorial, uh, never a chair, so never a full professorial position. But he does, he is a very important policy analyst, right? The head of the, um, is it the, the Handelskammer in um, the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna? But that's an important advisory role. And especially in monetary matters, his, his voice carries a lot of weight. But it becomes harder and harder to graduate students of his liking. That's for sure. Uh, and, um, and, and that grows worse and worse over time. And then anti-Semitism plays a more and more important role, which hampers some of them. Gender issues uh, play a role. I shouldn't be underestimated. But um, yeah, it's still flourishing outside the university, just not so much inside. In the 1930s, there was another huge crisis of civilization. How did they react to the upcoming fascism and then the Second World War? That must have destroyed their historical theory of civilization, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And he, here it's, it's, it's important for one moment to go back to the end of the First World War. If you look at that moment historically, there's still a sense in which this was the final battle of the old world and that the new world would somehow be better. But it turns out in the 1930s very clearly that this new world is no better than the old. And for the Austrian liberals, this is of particular significance because not only are they now battling socialism, which, like I said, they felt that they could still engage on somewhat rational grounds. They're now also battling a political movement that they feel they have no, no grounds of argument even with. They don't even know quite know where to start. They feel that instincts are coming back, that a romantic type of politics is coming back, that they're absolutely powerless against. And so one response to this is acceptance. And this is something that I play around with in the book. So at what point do you simply give up on the historical project of, of liberalism? At what point do you merely say, well, the, the past was better, but it's never coming back? And I say that that intellectual position or even almost a moral position is very tempting for the Austrian liberals, not tempting in the sense that, oh, uh, you know, that's where they really want to be. But it's tempting because there's just so little hope left. The despair that they feel is so deep and so profound that they really don't know if there's a coming back from the rise of fascism. Um, what plays into that is that a lot of former socialists become fascists and they felt that yeah last year we were debating you about socialism and now you're f now you say that fascism is the new thing that we should debating and they, they simply don't don't know where to take it anymore and they, they see very little future for this liberal project what also plays into that is that there's very little future for austria 
right? It has already lost its its empire. Vienna is 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 too big for uh, the rest of the country. Is a common argument at the time, but it it feels like they're really at the end of an epoch. And an important historian associated with them, who I also cite in the book, really talks about this as the end of the Roman Empire. So this is the end of the Habsburg Empire. And yeah, all you can do is 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 watch and observe. Schumpeter always plays around with this attitude. He's he's intellectually attracted to it. He loves playing that role. But the despair is very deep in, in, in Mises too. I think it hardens him into a kind of old school liberalism that few people find viable for the future. It makes him look old or old fashioned to others. And then slowly, and this is what I try to detail, is that the generation of Hayek so the generation born around 1890 to 1900 tries to find a renewed liberal response to this. And in that sense, right, people hate the word neoliberalism these days. But in that sense, this is really an attempt to formulate a neoliberalism because they feel that the old liberalism has failed. A story of natural progress towards ever more liberty is not the historical story that you can tell anymore. So we have to find another way of thinking about liberalism. I suppose uh, in the Austrian community, people hate the word neoliberalism. I'm not sure about other. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, but this is also one of the reactions you said that they just let it wither. You, you refer to the concept of therapeutic nihilism. Yeah. Um, what is that? So, so this is another philosophical stance that I trace back to the Vienna Medical School. The Vienna Medical School is often accused by its critics of practicing a kind of therapeutic nihilism. So once the patient is sick, you can do nothing but let nature heal him or let nature take his life. And it's a curious stance, but for the people at the Viennese Medical School, it's a deeply honest stance because they are trying to distance themselves from what they call the quack doctors who always say, oh, but I have a new solution for it. I have a new potion, a new medicine, a new treatment that will get you there. So they always keep on experimenting on the patient. And the generation of 1870 at the Viennese Medical School really starts to say, that is all nonsense. We should be honest about our own limits and about the limits of our knowledge. And we should simply be able to say to the patient that when there's no hope anymore, there's no hope anymore. And therefore, we can only accept his fate. And this acceptance of fate is something that I see, uh, I think you see in, in Viennese literature I try to trace it very much in Viennese literature, a kind of the world is the world attitude. All you can do is either laugh at it with irony or see the drama in it, but there's little you can do to change that course of that history. There's nothing you can do to change its fate. And it seems that the fate of the Habsburg Empire and then later Austria is simply decline and ultimately destruction. So it's that type of cultural attitude uh, of therapeutic nihilism that I argue is also prominent in the Austrian School of Economics. Now, some people have pushed back against this point, and perhaps I overstated in the book, but it's a demon that's there, right? So it's an internal struggle. They're constantly fighting this despair, this hopelessness. So it's, it's, it's somehow they, they never quite want to give in, but they're always tempted to give in because they also see that with full intellectual honesty, that's the only position they can really take. Isn't that also a bit uh, deterministic? Yeah, it is very deterministic. And this is precisely why 
Karl Popper plays a role in my book because it is so important to see what he does in his open society book. The entire book is about making the future open again, saying that there is an open future to which human beings can contribute, not by laying out a full rationalist plan for the future, but they have some influence over this. The influence might be indirect, it might be imperfect, but the influence is there. And he says the worst thing we can ever do is believe the historical school and believe that there's such a thing as a historical fate. The worst thing that we can do is believe Marx and really think that there are universal laws of human history and all we can do is submit to them. And he says this is the worst thing we could possibly do as intellectuals. We have to show that the future is open. I even think that this later philosophical work on the natural science in which he makes arguments about an undeterministic universe are somewhat influenced by the importance of, for him, this moral and intellectual stance of having to say, no, the future is open and we can contribute to it. Yes, just uh, <laughs> just feel to, to throw it in there. Um, that was their reading of Marx, I think there was other readings of Marx, and I'm not yeah. sure if Marx yeah, was Yeah, no, there, there were certainly other readings of, of Marx out there, um, right? And I, I show this in the book very clearly for, for Freud. Hayek is very uncharitable in his reading of Freud. Popper is very uncharitable in his reading of Plato. Some people even argue that he completely turns the argument of Plato on its head. He's very uncharitable in his reading of Marx. But that's not the point, right? The point yeah, yeah, is that they're fighting certain perceived cultural meanings of these people. So it's it's not merely intellectual debate. It's it's a it's it's a debate about the cultural meanings that they see around them and how they seek to alter them. And then it's important that they take precisely these symbols, right? Uh, Marx and and for Hayek, uh, the sort of progressive socialists that he he tries to argue against. But it's important that he he takes them on, uh, that they take them on as important symbols to uh, worth fighting. We've discussed how those early Austrians were deeply influenced by the Austrian context, but then came the 1930s, the lack of uh, employment opportunities, and for some already and for others, then, of course, the rise of fascism. And they all emigrated, and most of them would end up in the U.S., or at least in the English-speaking world. So how did they react to that? I mean, as you said, their theories were very much reflecting the situation in Vienna at the time, and now they arrive at a totally different context, cultural, institutional. So what happened with their theories or their thinking? Well, what, what happened to them, there's no, there's no uniform story. And, 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 and one of the things I added, uh, differ, differing from my dissertation, is a book in which I try to track some of these, I think, ultimately somewhat individual pathways into the new world. Uh, some people managed to get by very well as economists with a with a twist. Think of Haberler and, and Fritz Machloop. Others such as Hayek became much more deeply involved in a political economy project, sometimes even being somewhat ignored by other economists because it wasn't clear to them anymore whether this was e economics or social philosophy or whatever it was. Mises, I think, spends the rest of his career working out the complete consequences of the Viennese debates that he's had. So he never quite engages a new audience, which is very different from, from Hayek, right? Hayek's book, The Road to Serve Them, is completely written to a British audience. If you check the footnotes, the Germans are almost, uh, or the German-speaking world is almost absent. And it's a very conscious attempt to really say, well, I'm writing for this new audience. 
I'm sending them a warning. And to do so, I have to do that in their own language. And that doesn't only mean English. It also means in the meanings and the symbols and the people that they respect and look up to, right? So I have to talk to them in their tradition. And he does this again in the Constitution of Liberty, which is his book for America. And it's dedicated to the civilization, the unknown civilization that's growing in America, right? So it's a far more constructive attitude that he takes that tries to look back as little as he can. Although, of course, it's it's completely based on the experience that he's had there. And you see that in the foreword, but in the rest of the book, it's, it's almost absent because he's trying to contribute to a new intellectual project, one that he thinks is worth contributing to again, something that he wasn't quite sure of in in Austria anymore. And to, to say one final thing about this relation of, of migration, right? One of the crucial questions is, do we want to go back? So should we go back to Europe? Is Europe a lost continent? Is it more worthwhile fighting this fight in Britain or in America even? What do we still owe Europe? What does Europe owe us? And it's for every one of them, it's a very, very difficult relationship for the rest of their life. They feel nostalgia for the place. They want to go back to it. They hope that it once will be again as great as it was or perhaps as great as they have romanticized it in their memory. But they all feel very ambiguous about actually going back, except for, except for holidays, because you can't beat the Viennese mount, or the, the mountains around Vienna. Does anybody go back? Um, does anybody... Well, Hayek has a serious project in which he tries to convince the Ford Foundation and some other foundations to set up a university of Vienna. Those projects look pretty seriously from what I've, I've seen in the archives. I don't think any of the people that I talk about in the book goes back. Some do stay behind, but I'm not sure if any of them move back. So there was never an attempt to rebuild it. An example that comes to my mind, you have in, in philosophy, the Frankfurt School that emigrated and then at least the most important members returned to Frankfurt after the Second yeah. World War and tried to rebuild it, but that was never seriously considered. No, it, it, was, it was never seriously considered. Right? And of course, Hayek moves back to Salzburg uh, much later, but that is really, then, then we're talking decades onwards. But wasn't there a, an attempt to import the Viennese culture to the US, for example, by recreating those circles? Well, there were attempts to recreate seminars of the same type, but they were somewhat scattered, the, the Austrian school was. And there were certainly Austrian circles. I think the, the, there was even a neighborhood that was called Viennese or Austria, Austrian in New York, and some of the uh, migrants sought to live there. Hayek in his reminiscences, talks very, very highly of one of the original seminars that he sets up in Chicago, um, where he works at a, at a very interdisciplinary institute at the time. And there he, he manages to get biologists and physicists and philosophers and himself and some other economists to talk again in a very broad way. And then the other thing that happens, and which I, in my book, present very much as a continuation of that Viennese culture is what they try to do in the Mont Pelerin society. They again try to set up an interdisciplinary conversation about people. It's somewhat exclusive, like the circles, as you emphasized. It's also organized around a shared set of values, but those were precisely what the circles in Vienna always were. They weren't uh, a free-for-all, but they were uh, groups with a purpose. And that is also true of the Mont Pelerin society. Of course, when they try to construct a 
progressive forward-looking program for the future, they discover also that they have serious differences in between them. But at least in terms of opposition, they have very clear sense of what they're against. And that, that is really the big attempt, but that's only once a year. And to us now, looking back, it looks more like an annual conference, perhaps, than a, than a seminar meeting. Hayek is one of the main persons in your book. So I think of him, or I read it a bit like in the beginning, he was this detached observer, observing civilization as a progressive, as you say, then he might be portrayed as a bit more involved observer, warning, yeah. giving warnings about the world to serve him. But later, it seems to me he was much more an active participant trying to build something like the Mont Pelerin Society. It was not just a circle. They wanted to influence actual policies. And then he writes a book, Constitution of Liberty, which is This is a building of a system. It's not observing how civilization goes on. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's that's absolutely absolutely correct, right? One of one of the chapters, uh, I think I'm I'm looking it up now, but uh, is called from uh, from a uh, for, or from a student to a defender of civilization, uh, right? And and they become very much that, right? They and and it's particularly true for Hayek. He says. No, 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 this thing was worth defending and it might perhaps not be defensible in its old form, but then we have to find new forms and new ways of, of making the argument that uh, individual autonomy and, and liberty ultimately are the best uh, ways to uh, organize a society. Uh, and he becomes very much involved in that political project after the war. Absolutely. So let's come to the end of the book. Your last chapter is titled What it means to be a student of civilization. So how is it still possible to be a student of civilization today? And how is Austrian economics nowadays related to this concept? I think not in the book, but in an article you have argued that Austrian economics has become rather amoral and you argue for remoralization of Austrian economics because, as you argue, the early Austrian economics was a very... They took a moral standpoint. They took a moral view. So maybe you want to comment on this situation yeah. today. Um, so two questions there. One one about the, the, the final chapter about what it means to be a student of civilization. I list a couple of points there and, and I guess people can, can look them up. But the, the most important point I, I argue is really that as economists and as political theorists, we have neglected what happens between politics and the market. So we have neglected to study what I in the book call civilization. You might also call it civil society, but we have neglected somewhat the social and the cultural. And so when we see a market failure, we have to rely on the state to fix it. And we never have a social or a cultural solution, or we don't even see them, uh, even when those solutions are already present. So that's that's the one element. And the other, the other thing that really comes back to the student bit is that yeah, Hayek later becomes a theorist of, of complex adaptive systems, or at least of complexity. And it's really the humility in the attitude of the student that I found very admirable, uh, and that is missing in much of social science today, which very much is a science of prediction and ultimately control of human behavior. So it tries to uh, control processes within society rather than study more or less organic and cultural processes in society to see what their relative strengths are. Why do cities already function? How do human beings help one another out in times of hardship? No, the question is always, there are people in hardship, what can we do about it? 
And it's such a different way of thinking about the problem that I really think it's very worthwhile taking the student attitude very, very seriously as social scientists. Human beings already go about their lives. So they are, in a sense, experts about going about one's life. And our humility be, should be to acknowledge that and then to study how people do so and how they find solutions despite their own limitations, despite the setbacks and despite the constraints that they face. So that's the first element of, of, of the question. And the other one is, is this true for Aust modern Austrian economics? Are they students of civilization or not? And, and should they incorporate some more of this? Well, I certainly think that the, the student tradition is somewhat forgotten about, not completely, Uh, and there are certain people uh, who have emphasized it, but it's never become quite prominent. So if you pick up a textbook on modern Austrian economics, it will never be uh, very central. And even to the point that they have very much embraced an almost positivist attitude about the importance of values in science. And uh, right, Weber has this idea that we should be value relevant. Um, we should be as neutral or at least as balanced as possible in our evaluations. But what we ultimately do should be highly relevant for values. Now, there is some of this in modern uh, Austrian economics. It has a political edge. In America, it's often associated with libertarianism. But I'm not sure whether it wholly is Uh, about values so much. So it might be more wedded to a kind of political vision of society now than it is to a particular set of values. And 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 let's not forget, right, that what, what, the lib what made the liberals and the socialists take each other so seriously in the 1920s and before is that they were ultimately philosophies of em emancipation and autonomy, right? They sought to create human beings who could govern themselves. And they took that very seriously as a sort of guiding value in their scholarship. I'm not sure whether that's completely present in current Austrian economics. Let's close this interview with some methodological questions. How did you select the group of people? And I'm asking because, at least I was surprised, there are many people prominently in your book, for example, Karl Popper or Norbert Elias, who are not usually thought of when you think of Austrian economics. So how did you choose which people to include in your story and which not? Yeah, the good historian answer would be that I, I, I defined it beforehand and that uh, I, I went with that. But that, that would be uh, absolutely uh, lying in, that in, in this instance. Right? I, th I think what happened as, as, I, as I worked on the project is that certain themes became prominent and when certain themes become prominent other figures and other parts of people's work come more into the foreground and and this is only what happened so normally if you tell a book about austrian economics you would never tell it without lionel robbins i'm not 100 sure but i don't think lionel robbins is in my book balras might be there by mention but certainly not prominently but once the theme of civilization becomes central right it starts to make sense to think well so Freud is Viennese. He wrote a lot about civilization and civilization and its discontents is an important book in that cultural setting. Uh, Norbert Elias comes out of uh, a somewhat similar intellectual atmosphere, has written about it. The anthropologist Bronislav Malinowski, another Viennese thinker, has written about it. You mentioned Polanyi earlier. right? So as certain other themes become come more into the foreground, also other people come more into the foreground. And this is also very true, I think, in the instance of Karl Popper, 
uh, who, even though he was a somewhat reluctant member of the Mont Pelerin Society, certainly never was an Austrian economist and therefore in some ways shouldn't be so prominent in the book. But when the change from the sort of the accepting attitude to the more constructive and forward-looking attitude, when, when I studied that transformation, it was so clear that the war books by people like Schumpeter and Hayek are so well supplemented by his war book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, that it enriched and made so much clearer what the meaning of these books was to have that book next to it. Yeah, and then... Um, such a figure becomes so prominent in your book, even though you're absolutely correct that he's not an Austrian economist. But it might be a disadvantage because you you have uh, mentioned before there are many forgotten early Austrians and you don't really do much to no. give them a prominent place. I think you leave out a lot of the early Austrians that were influential at the time. I don't know, one can think of... Uh, Emil Sachs, who was a long-time professor in Prague, I think he died in the 1920s. Somebody else who I thought would have maybe fitted into your uh, story was Richard Schiller, a student of Karl Menger. He was basically the most prominent Austrian economist working on international economics. He became forgotten in this tradition, but he emigrated to the U.S. as well. He ended up at the New School in New York, and he only died in 1970. 100 years old or nearly 100 years old. So this would be somebody, he was involved in the um, uh, publication of the second edition of, of Menger's Grundsätze in 1923 after Menger had died. This is just one example. So you omit all those early Austrians that are not prominent today. Did you do that on purpose or did you plan on doing that, but then you run out of space to, to or time to integrate them all or were they just not that interesting to your story? Um, I think they would certainly enrich the story. I, in some ways, they undoubtedly even contradict it because if you get down to the level of individuals, uh, you will always find more pluriformity than you do when you focus perhaps on on these big themes and, and, and big developments as I have done. I don't know. I, I think the book is imperfect in that sense. I've also later realized how important... Uh, Machloop could be to bring out some of the the other more civilizational themes. He's worked on on knowledge, had a fondness for language, and half of his articles in the United States somehow have something to do with language and language philosophy. So he would would have been another wonderful candidate to say more about. But I think what the book ended up becoming, and I don't know whether this is fully methodologically justified, but is very much a narrative about two major themes and one is that theme of civilization and how you think about it in relation to economics and the other one is that transformation from an intellectual and moral stance of acceptance to one that's more activist and more engaged and involved and those two themes then sort of structure who features there very prominently and then you draw on the names that people already know and you try to show that there are different dimensions to their work right perhaps the, that word says a lot that in the in the subtitle that it says reconsidered is that I, I have reconsidered many other people or reconsidered the contribution of, of Hayek and Menger and Wieser uh, rather than that I've really added to our historical uh, knowledge of the other important figures and economists in Vienna. Okay, and so my very last question and that might be more interesting to young scholars. You published your book with the Cambridge University Press, a very reputable press, of course. How long did it take you to 
turn your PhD thesis into this book? Was it complicated? Um, in one sense, it wasn't, uh, because my supervisor has always had always stressed that I was writing a book and a book and a book and a book. Now, this is bad career advice, so don't <laughs> don't follow it, because I've only published one of the chapters as a separate paper, um, and that is in part because the chapters don't lend themselves very well to be published separately. And this is, uh, yeah, this. So, so this has had its advantages and its disadvantages. The certainly, certainly the advantage was that turning it into a book wasn't a whole new job uh, because it was a collection of papers and then it had to be turned into a book. It was written as a coherent story from uh, beginning to end. My own voice is there in a couple of the chapters sort of reflecting on it rather than merely telling the historical story. Uh, but other than that, it's 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 a I th I think a coherence. I hope it's a coherent story from from back to front. Now then, of course, there's the other thing that uh, the other half of the process is actually getting it or finding a publisher and then getting it published. I was I was very much helped by other senior scholars that put the manuscript on the right desks um, so that it would be seen by uh, by book editors. Uh, and then I was requested, but then it still takes a considerable time considerable time, amount of time before it's published. I graduated early 2014 and the book was published uh, somewhere in the middle of 2016. So it's a good two-year gap. For for I feel that I've only worked on it for about a year, but apparently it's it's, it's two years in, in, in that sense. A lot of that also has been uh, revision. I'm not a native speaker of English, as, as you, you well have heard uh, by now. I'm also somewhat of a sloppy writer. So before it's a, it's really a book, uh, a lot of revision was needed. Of course, when you finally graduate, a lot more people take your worry, uh, work somewhat more seriously. So they give more detailed feedback. So it has greatly benefited also from one of the uh, the reviewers at, at Cambridge. But ultimately, right, even though it's a book manuscript, you can see that two years is still not not very, very fast, right? So that's another reason to to vote against it as sort of a career move because it means that I published too little of this project during my PhD process and then afterwards it also took long to get it published. Well, it seems like you're doing fine though at the moment. So. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and this is another thing. I mean, Hans-Michael at Trautwein has had this wonderful presidential address at the Eschat meetings in which he said, we are the last of the generalists. And, and this is, this is what, I, what I have tried to do. So in my publications, I am uh, perhaps somewhat all over the place. Uh, I've, I've worked, uh, as you said, in the field of cultural economics, which is much more an applied field of economics. Uh, I've worked in economic methodology. And uh, so right, we, we study the history of economics, which makes us broad economic thinkers. And you should try to find outlets for that wide knowledge, right? So I know that you have studied Adam Smith and his views on trade, which might give you a somewhat unique perspective on current trade debates or something of the sort or methodologies in, in, in trade research or anything of the, the sort, right? We shouldn't think that all that historical knowledge is only good for the history of economics. It might also be put to other uses. That was a very nice closing remark, so I will leave it here. Thank you, Irvin, for discussing your book, with me today. Thank you so much, Reinhard. It was a great pleasure. For further information about this episode, visit our homepage at satirisneverparibus.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We are happy about any comments you might have about this episode or about our podcasts in general.